Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode one of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. So today is a huge treat for me personally. This is my mentor, a leader in my life, a personal friend. I hang on his every word, waiting for nuggets of wisdom about life, about business. I have learned so much from Ron Bailey. So how did I meet Ron? Well, imagine years ago, I started my first company, Red, White, and Blue Vending, and we got this one Strayer University campus. And these machines would empty almost every day. And so I would go with my drivers, you know, a couple times a week to make sure that everything was going well. And this guy would come into the vending room and he would ask me how my business was doing. And for doing that, because I was so happy anybody even cared about my business, I'd throw him free chips and sodas and coffee. And so one day he leaves the, the room and in walks my contact for the college. He's like, is everything okay? What did Mr. Bailey want? I'm like, that guy? He's a professor here, right? And he said, no, he owns Strayer. I'm like, he owns Strayer? And I thought he was a professor because the first time I met him, he said he just got done teaching a class. So I run down the hallway. I yelled at Ron Bailey. I'm like, Ron Bailey, I said, you own Strayer? And he turns around, classic humble answer. He said, does it even matter? And I said, of course it does, because I want every single one of your campuses. And at that time, he had campuses up and down the East Coast. And he said, then earn it. And I said, oh, you're going down. I give myself one year. I'm going to have every single Strayer campus. And he laughed. He said, all right, let's see what you got. Well, within one year, we had every single Strayer campus. But what did he really give me? I said, can I bring my P&L, my balance sheet by your office? And he said, I'd love to see it. And I'll never forget the first time he looked at it. You know, he was like, hey, this is one heck of a company you're building. And he, you know, really looked at each line and said, hey, bring this up half percent. This should never be here. This should never, never be more than 50% of this number. He was really giving me an on-the-ground MBA, a true mentor situation. And since then, we've started business together. We've gotten to great trips together. We've become good lifelong friends. But why do I love Ron? It's his optimism. It's his, you know, the knowledge that he brings to the table. You know, we'll have discussions and I'll say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And he'll say, well, Dan, we could talk about it or we could just do it. And if it doesn't work, we can stop and do something else. It is addicting to be around people like Ron Bailey. He was named Entrepreneur in the East Coast by Ernst & Young. The guy built a successful company, you know, created wealth for his own family and for, and for so many other families. And, and through his education, uh, you know, business through Strayer University, he, he's changed lives. And now he's really pledged his whole life and his wealth to charity, to give back. And that's what he does on a regular basis. I'm for, so fortunate to be even part of that process and as an evaluator over the years for his scholarship programs and his foundation. But Ron Bailey is truly an example of legacy-leaving leadership. So why should you listen today? Because we can all learn from Ron Bailey. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Look, I'm not going to do this justice because to truly introduce Ron Bailey, we'd be here for hours. So after my best attempt to briefly introduce Ron, I'm going to ask him to tell us about his journey, to fill in the key pieces and gaps. But for now, I am joined by Ron Bailey. Ron grew up without much in material terms in West Virginia, served in the Army, went on to graduate from college, the first in his entire family to ever do so, ended up as a professor at Strayer College, ended up buying the college, turned it into Strayer University, took it public, 
added value to his students, and created significant prosperity for many people, including himself, and then committed his life to giving the majority of that wealth away to help others. An entrepreneur, husband, father, philanthropist, and I'm so fortunate to call a personal friend. Ron Bailey, I know who you are, but for our listeners who may not know the whole story, who are you? What do you do right now? Well, Dan, you pretty well you covered it uh, pretty good. I uh, guess uh, the the story goes that I did uh, work for the uh, Strayer University for a good while. I retired into to Tampa, Florida, where I'm the uh, I run the Bailey Family Foundation. Uh, it has about uh, fifty thousand fifty million dollars in assets. We give out about two and a half million dollars worth of scholarships to high school students each year. So that kind of keeps me uh, going to work every day. Yeah, I'm sure it does. And and what a, what a great way, what a great reason to go to work to to make a difference in others others lives. You know, in in the poem "The Station" by Robert Hastings, he says there is no one station in life; that the journey is the joy. Can you describe for me and and our audience the journey you took to get to where you are right now? And I, I know I briefly mentioned it, but can you include the story of how you were able to buy Strayer and and eventually become the CEO of Strayer? Well, I guess that um, you you have points in your life which you make decisions and you don't realize at the time you make it that it's an in, you know a very important decision. Uh, I uh, was in the military and. Uh, had an opportunity to go to work for the bureau uh, for the census bureau when I got out of the army and I did that and then I made a decision that I didn't like working for the federal government so I went to private industry in the meantime I continued to attend uh, American University and work on my education and I started teaching in 1974 uh, I got out of the military in 65, so about eight years later, I started teaching at Strayer College, and uh, I, I guess I did that from 74 till about uh, 85. Uh, I was mostly just teaching and uh, kind of enjoyed it, and in 1985, I had an opportunity to um, go to the university full-time. At uh, that time, I made another decision to go ahead and uh, uh, transfer from private industry back into a uh, university setting. And uh, one of my jobs at the university was the vice president of finance. And as such, I was going around, uh, actually around the world. I went to England and uh, France uh, trying to find buyers for the, the uh, college because the owner was... Uh, wanted to retire. Uh, it seems as though uh, everybody was interested in it, in purchasing the college, because it was a for-profit college. But uh, when it came time to uh, go to the final meeting, uh, they came up with IOUs, and it looked as though the uh, owner was uh, getting ready to accept an IOU, and I thought, well, if he's going to accept an IOU, I'll give him an IOU. He said, Ron, you don't have any money. Why would I do that? I told him I could come up with uh, three hundred thousand dollars, and uh, I uh, cashed in my four hundred one k, took a second mortgage out on my house, and eventually scraped together three hundred thousand dollars, 
plus uh, note for $5 million and actually purchased the college, and this was in 86. Uh, So we worked really hard for the next 10 years, and in 96, uh, we uh, had grown from about 1,000 students to about 15,000 students, and we took the college public on the NASDAQ under STRA, and uh, we started expanding and went from uh, one campus in downtown D.C. to uh, 15 campuses. So um, I guess it was in 86 that I purchased the college, and in uh, the early 90s I uh, was able to pay off the $5 million note, and my wife and I had uh, sole ownership, so we went public. I gave the employees 10%. Some of the deans became almost instant millionaires. And uh, uh, so I had, uh, we had kept growing the school. And in 2000, um, I became ill with something called GBS, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh so I decided at that point I would like to sell the college. And uh, so a group out of New York formed, came down and actually wanted to, to you know, buy partial and uh, give me an IOU, but I had gone through that you know, 20 years earlier and I would not accept an IOU. <laughs> so they gave me cash, and that's when I moved to Florida in opened up the uh, Bailey Family Foundation headquarters here in Tampa. So walk me through the conversation with, with Beverly. When you say, I'm going to risk it all, I'm going to put everything on the line. Oh my, that was really a tough time when I tried to raise the $300,000 because you have to remember that uh, that was an absolute fortune, uh, unheard of. And uh, I told her that, uh, you know, I hoped it worked. And uh, she uh, cried and uh, said that... Uh, she might lose her Lincoln. She got a, a Lincoln <laughs> car. And uh, so we might have to move because I'd taken out the second mortgage on the house. So it, it was it was quite a risk uh, that you had to take. But uh, I had been working there. You have to remember, I started in 74 as an adjunct professor. And I had been working there for <clears throat> about 15 years. So I, I felt pretty c- comfortable that I knew the business and that I knew how to make it grow. So in 86, whenever I was able to uh, get control, uh, then that was what I I did. I I spent every um, hour working on trying to make it grow. I spent all the dollars on marketing and and trying to make sure that it grew, opening up new campuses. And uh, so it it all worked out very well in uh, as I said, Wall Street took note in uh, 96. Then I bought it in 86. In 96, Wall Street took note, and uh, I was able to take the the whole uh, university public. Now, so so I just recently heard this proverb: "Those who forget what their why is, in other words, why they do something, will lose their way." So, what is your big why? What motivates you, even when times are tough? Why do you do what you do? Well. It's not going to be very honorable, but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to gain control of the university is because I always had a, 
a fear when I was in the Army that uh, some corporal would put me in a stockade for uh, not wearing my hat or doing something trivia. Uh, I was never concerned about doing something significant because I wouldn't do anything significant. But I thought, well, if I, if I make a change again, I want to make a change where I am the owner and no one can tell me that they do not need me tomorrow because I do have a job. Wow. Well, I love, I love that answer. And, and I think that, you know, for a lot of people, just that, that it, there's risk involved, but just that security that you're in control of your own destiny. So I, I actually really appreciate and love that answer. You know, one of the greatest coaches of all time, John Wooden from UCLA, um, you know, 30, 40 years after, you know, being coached by students, still talking about the influence that he had in their lives. He has a wooden pyramid, and on that pyramid, he has a lot of these building blocks that include words like loyalty and confidence, intentness, friendship, poise, competitive greatness. What values would you include in your pyramid? If you had to give me a couple of them, give me a few of your personal values you found that have served you well in life. Um, you generally do things through other people, so I very seldom use the word I. Uh, it, uh, mostly we did this and uh, try and keep it in, in, you know, toward the people I'm working with, the team I'm working with. Uh, that's, uh, that has always served me very well. Um, I guess that uh, I have a positive attitude. I mean, I'm always uh, I'm very optimistic. Uh, obviously, a, a, a can do, it will be done. It's a good idea. Uh, so... And and you know you know know knowing you Ron it's so interesting that is one hundred percent true because you know we'll talk about business ideas and one of my favorite lines is you'll say you know after we after we evaluate whether it's a good one or not you'll say well we can talk about it or or we can just do it and if it doesn't work we can stop and do something else and that can do mindset it's addicting it's very it's 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 neat to be around people like that you know another sage piece of advice I love is that which you gaze upon you become so what do you spend your time thinking about what do you daydream about. Well, I guess that at this point, uh, both of my sons uh, are in business for themselves. And uh, so I spend a lot of time looking at their business, trying to think of uh, mostly in the marketing and expansion. And uh, sometimes they take my advice and sometimes they don't. So uh, I, I guess from uh, the foundation's standpoint, we're trying to figure out how we can better serve the, the students with the scholarship program. Yeah, see, I, I love and I would expect no other answer, honestly, because, you know, always thinking of others than yourself, not about notice that you didn't say, you know, what, what I'm going to be doing or where I'm going, but, you know, how can I better the lives of my kids and, and my family and how can I better the lives of those other families that we make a difference in through the foundation? So that's really an admirable and, and great answer. I, I have to ask you this because I, I don't think we've ever talked about it. When you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh I, I guess I, I uh, was not very ambitious. Uh, I remember in high school, you had to put what you wanted to do, and I put down that I wanted to sell the seven seas. I always thought maybe I would go in the military and uh, go in the Navy, which I didn't. Uh, I was in the Army. But, uh, uh, so I, I, but I was always successful. I had a very successful uh, paper route. I had the largest paper route in East Princeton, West Virginia. Uh, I was the captain of the Civil Air Patrol That's uh, uh, when I was in high school. I played uh, high school sports. Um, but, uh, no, I mostly just wanted to get along. And uh, my, when I graduated from high school, I went to Winchester, Virginia, 
and got a job greasing cars at uh, a Buick dealership, and I thought I had arrived because I was making a dollar an hour. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And, you know, speaking of worrying, I worried about you, Dan, when you ran red, white, and blue. Uh, you took a lot of risk. Uh, you were always buying machines and, uh, you know, trying to expand your uh, business. And I knew that uh, Lou Ann, your wife, was pregnant, so I was concerned that maybe you were biting off more than you could chew. <laughs> so uh, when you asked me to look over your books, I thought, well, okay, I'll be happy to uh, you know, uh, since I didn't charge you anything, I felt that the advice I gave you couldn't be too, too bad. So at any rate, but I, I did worry about uh, you know you and uh, uh, your family. Well, and 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 is much appreciated. And by the way, the the advice that you've given me over the years is invaluable. And and it and you're uh, Ron is referring to my first business, Red White and Blue Vending, which was a vending business, and that's how we met because I was the vending operator for uh, the majority of Strayer campuses, and that's how we originally met. So let me ask you this, still today, and by the way, thank you again for that, still today, if you had to list a dream job, like is a rock star, a you know, professional athlete, is there like a dream job that you have in your head that you would have loved to do or that you, you know, in, in a wildest fantasy would be able to do? Just curious. Uh, no, I think, I think I got to, you know, I was the uh, uh, president, chairman of the board of a major uh, for-profit organization, so that was, that was my dream. And I achieved that dream. And uh, I, not only did I achieve that dream of that job, then I was handsomely rewarded uh, for doing that when I decided to sell it and come to Florida. Yeah, no, that's that's exciting. And you know, I always and and I think both of us are in this category. And I think this is a great way to view life. And you've been in you've been a part of me having this attitude. I think. Either one of us, neither one of us wants to go anywhere. But if something happened and we went tomorrow, there better be a margarita machine at each, each one of our funerals because we've had, we've, we've had a good life, you know, and, and no regrets and, and just, uh, you know, great experiences and probably the most important part, great friends and family. So um, it, from, this, from this last standpoint of these questions, because i just curious, anything keep you up at night? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? In other words, do you have any concerns for the future? I guess you kind of said it with Kyle and Kent, your sons and their businesses. But any, you know, anything that keeps you up at night these days? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty uh, stable. I guess uh, when I was back in the business, I always worried about uh, government rules and regulations. Because that's about the only thing that can bother you a whole lot. And I guess it still is. If they make some rule uh, that would be adverse to uh, foundations, then uh, that could negatively affect uh, what we're trying to, Bever and I are trying to get done. And what we're trying to get done is to go ahead and uh, uh, I want to make sure that uh, when we go, that we go broke. Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to accumulate. Well, it seems to me the, the I'm a karma person, right? The more you give, the more you get in return, whether you like it or not. And if you don't, who cares? Because you're doing the right thing anyway. But I always say that it seems the more that you give, the more you continue to make. And that's just, I don't know whether it's God's work. Hopefully, it, I, I think it is. But it's just a, a neat thing to, to watch uh, from the sidelines and, and admirable that you want that you even say that, that you want to do that. Um, so, all right. So, I want to talk about some general leadership uh, advice, and then I want to drill down specifically into into, into your Strayer, you know, Strayer University and, and that business. But um, my goal in our time together is to give our listeners some food for thought on how to expand leadership excellence in their own life. Can you explain 
you know, what is your personal leadership style or philosophy, and how did you develop it? Well, I guess that um, you have to have an objective, and uh, most of the time uh, you would like to do everything yourself, so then at some point you have to start getting other people involved. So you have to get good, you have to surround yourself with really good people and uh, good people uh, people who have the, the, the same goals or at least some of the visions that you have. And uh, uh, it's kind of like the get on the bus, get off the bus, and you get everybody ready and uh, you know, then you started uh, charging toward your goal. Um, it, as you go through life, uh, everybody has, has to win. You can't you can't constantly cause somebody to be a loser and uh, expect them to help you reach your goal time after time. So you have to figure out what they perceive to be to be winners. It, you know, it's either a prestige or money or a job or a position. So you have to be aware of what the people around you are striving to do and make sure that they're achieving their objectives. Uh, and if it can dovetail in with yours, then that's great. Well, you know, it's interesting because, okay, so to to so that our listeners can hear this, so not only do you practice what you preach, but out of all the accounts that I ever had with the vending business, you were the only one, the only one that said, do not pay me a commission past those low prices, you know, pass that on to my, my students. You were the only one who said, hey, listen, if I need to make money in the vending business, I'm not doing my job running a, a university. And and I just thought that was so admirable. Um because you, you you know you weren't trying to squeeze out everything you were trying to add value to those around you and you've done it all along in your life. Um, can you tell a story or two in your life where you weren't leading well and maybe you said to yourself, "I have to change this so that I can lead better." Can you think of anything like that? Um, I, I really you know I, I can. I was I was terribly disappointed with the when I got out of the military. I went to work uh, for the government, and I think I was a GS seven, which was at that time was pretty good. And uh, I would go to work, and uh, but they didn't really have much work, and I couldn't quite fit in because I wanted to do things. So uh, they would say, "Go to the Library of Congress and work on your homework, or you know, just do your homework." And because at that time I was going to uh, uh, university uh, continuing my studies and uh, I became very um, discouraged and discouraged enough to uh, where I went ahead and left that uh, nice secure <laughs> government job I remember my mother told me at the time don't do that son you've got the job of a lifetime why would you want to leave a good government job and I went out into private industry and actually it turned out very good <laughs> because I was able to uh, be a, I was a computer programmer was my title at that time, and I was able to go into private industry and uh, actually advance much more than I could have if I'd have stayed with the government. Yeah. No, listen, it's it's amazing how those, those little decisions, well, at the time they seem so big, but can just you know, completely changed the trajectory of your life. And that clearly that did. D- can you describe the one trait, if you had to pick one trait that you look for in the top people around you and why? Um, I guess that uh, I, I want them to, uh, 
you know, to be good workers, to, you know, to you know, want to come to work every day and enjoy coming to work. So if uh, I get someone around that is just coming to work to get a paycheck, I can figure it out pretty quick and pretty quick like I don't want them on my team. Uh, so that's that's the one trait. Good good work habits uh, are, are just getting harder and harder to find. Yeah, and, 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 you know, we talk about that. I talk about that in my speeches, you know, just an enthusiasm for what they're doing, just to want to be there. I mean, that's half the battle is just sustained enthusiasm and the ability to work with others, I think, are, are crucial. So um, I love that answer. What What is the behavior or trait that you have seen that has derailed leaders in their life and career? Have you Is there, is there something that you've been able to witness that you could pass on to our listeners? Well, I think that uh, the the most damaging is where <clears throat> they don't understand that ever it has to be a win-win. Almost every situation has to be a win-win, uh, and uh, if you forget that, then it, it, it's not long before uh, you lose yourself. So, uh, I mean, you you have to get good deals, but you can't bury the other person or uh, they have to be they have to win also. So. Most of them, I guess, you have to look and see what everybody's trying to do and make sure that they fit in with what you're you're trying to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. From from your experience, describe what makes a great team. Like, what is? Do you have a strategy to build that powerful team? Because I, I thought you had an incredible team at Strayer. You know, you'd always surrounded yourself with good people that cared about you, cared about the the university. Well, you know, a lot of people like to come in and <clears throat> tear it down to the ground and rebuild it. Uh, I guess my character says that I'll come in and look and see what I have that's salvageable and build on that. So I've always uh, kind of uh, tried to arf them within whenever possible um, and uh, make sure that uh, everybody in the company knows that uh, if you're you're qualified and uh, you should be eligible for promotion. It makes everybody more interested in coming to work every day. Yeah. I always say it's like education, right? If you give people hope for, you know, for a better tomorrow and the, the chance to, to expand their lives and, and have, you know, a better life for their family, a, a lot of great things can start to happen. You know, you know, part of that is vision. You know, I was so fortunate to work in President Reagan's post-presidential office, and people always ask me what separated him. And I say, you know, this guy was a visionary leader. You know, he essentially came in on his first day and was like, you know, it's a new dawn. It's morning again in America. And he created this vision for people. What is your strategy to effectively create a vision for the people and teams you lead? And, and how did you create that vision, you know, for, for others to follow? Well, I think that you have to... Um verbalize your vision every day. Every day you go to work, you have to make sure that everybody understands where it is that we're trying to go to today. And uh, you reinforce that vision in, uh, you know, every, every opportunity you get. So whether it's in meetings or, you know, whether it's in um, products you're trying to sell or whatever it is, you just try and reinforce that vision. And And did... I guess I love that you said meetings. Do you? I mean, do how often do you have meetings? I mean, did did you have a lot of meetings at Strayer? Uh, no, we didn't have very many meetings. Uh, uh, I, actually, I had a lot of meetings, but they were mostly one on ones. They weren't really so many uh, large meetings. 
because the, the you know the the teachers have their own area that they work in, and the admissions has their area, and the you know the finance people have their area. So it, it's kind of a waste of time. I have always felt if you get them all together because they don't have that much in common, and uh, it's better if you get them and, and talk about specifically what your vision is that they should be doing. If you're in accounting, you should be collecting money. That's your primary mission. And uh, if you're in recruiting, you should be recruiting students. And if you're in teaching, you should be delivering a quality product. And uh, so uh, I I didn't have a lot of meetings, but I I had a lot of one-on-one meetings trying to make sure that they understood uh, what, what was expected of them. Nice. What, was, was there ever a mistake that you made that you learned from and that impacted how you did, you know, as far as your... <laughs> I don't believe it. Say it isn't so. I, I won't accept that. Well, I'm, you know, the grass always looks greener on the other side. So you would go to meetings and I was impressed with different people and eventually I would mess around and harm. And then uh, I, I was... But more often disappointed than I was pleased. So I guess that kind of reinforced the uh, promoting and the hiring from within. Yeah, no, I mean, once you, you're right. I mean, it's even through interview process, through a lengthy interview process, still hard to get to know them, you know, really well and see what their work ethic is and how they treat others in that short well, it, time. Well, it, it is tough, and you don't know how they're going to interact once they get there because they can be pretty good people. But when they get there, if they don't fit in, then the whole team gets disrupted. Yeah, and then and it's hard to get rid of of somebody like that. I mean, it's like you know, poison poisoning in the the well. It's really tough. Yeah, it is. It's tough. And uh, so, so but anyhow, that that's been the area that I was probably the you know uh, the most disappointed in over, over the years. So if if you had to boil it down. And I, again, I just wanted, I'm trying to get to this answer because I would just love to, to pass it along to, to the listeners. But if you had to boil it down, what do you say is the, is the true secret to your success? Uh, in my case, I, I think it was, uh, it was my work ethics and, and my ability to get along with people. Yeah, nice. And I, and I, can, I can see that because I don't, have you ever been late to a meeting? I don't think so. In your entire life? I don't think so. Yeah. I'm, generally five, I'm generally five, ten minutes early. I was sitting here before you call, at least 15 minutes ready. I would expect nothing less. You know, one time you told me the problem is too many young entrepreneurs want to hit a grand slam and swing for the fences, and they need to be comfortable hitting some singles and taking smaller steps. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, I guess that uh, most of the successful people, and I've known quite a few of them, um, they didn't start out thinking that they were um, going to hit a home run. They really was just trying to um, make make a profitable business, make it you know achieve their mission. So I think very few people who says, "Okay, I'm going to get in there and hit a home run right off." They they it just doesn't happen that way. It's not Dan. It's not the one decision you make. It's a multitude of decisions. You make throughout the day, and uh, that uh, make decide whether you're going to be successful or not successful. So, and a lot of people have a lot of meetings trying to say, "Well, we're going to think of something great," 
well, it'd be better off if they uh, made three or four intermediate decisions and they were the correct decisions and it would help them get to their objective faster. That is such great advice. And, and, and you're right about all the decisions. You also told me one side time you have to make a decision. In other words, you can't just sit and think about it all day long. And in business, there's especially as a leader, there's so many big and small decisions that have to be made on a regular basis. And if you sit and overanalyze every single one of them, nothing will ever get done. Well, in fact, if you don't make a decision, that is a decision within itself. So, yes, now you're better off to... Uh, you may be wrong. You only have to be right 51% of the time anyway. <laughs> so uh, make the decision and uh, then live with it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, part of that is kind of you, you mentioned this earlier, like, who do you surround yourself with? You know, President Reagan had a kitchen cabinet. Uh, it was a group. It, it, he affectionately called it his kitchen cabinet. Every president has a cabinet, but this was his kitchen cabinet, a group of trusted friends, advisors. And he, he, he relied on them to give him three things, brutal honesty, you know, shared vision, and, and they were all success-oriented. I believe, I truly believe there is power in having successful peers around you. Ron Bailey, who is in your kitchen cabinet? Can you name a few? Uh, well, I have uh, uh, Cairo, which has been with me for like 20 or 30 years. Uh, I do uh, uh, listen to both of my boys. They're now in their 40s, so uh, they're pretty successful entrepreneurs themselves. And, uh, I, you know, and I have people like you, Dan Quiggle, that I talk to frequently. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm quite active in our church, so there's uh, uh, the minister. Uh, I talk with him a good deal. So you just kind of surround yourself with, with a good, like you said, a good kitchen cabinet there, you know, and then you kind of listen to what they have to say. Well, first of all, I'm honored that you would even put me in that group. I know that you... Uh... You have a lot of great friends and and, and advisors, and um, it, it does matter, doesn't it? Because I, I I know there's no science behind this, but I always say if you take ten people in your life that you talk to on a regular basis or hang out with, you know, people like Pi or Stan for you, you know, that that you hang out with on a regular basis, and then you average them, that's a probably about where you're going to be, you know. And so, are you at the top pulling everyone else up, or are you at the bottom being pulled up all the time? I kind of like to be in that three or four position, right? Helping uh, others out the way you've helped me in my life, but then also, you know, getting challenged getting, on a regular basis. Get, getting, getting a push from you from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So how do you, um, you know, and I, I know when you're in the peak of running your business, but how do you ensure that you continue to grow and develop as a leader? Is it just a day-to-day -day learning experience? Um, well, yeah, you have to have some strategic vision from time to time, and I don't know whether it, uh, you know, it, you first come up with it, and then you kind of refine it, and then, as you said, you talk to your kitchen cabinet about it a little bit, and then the next thing you know, and I mean, it even happens with the uh, foundation, uh, you know, what is the best way to give out that two and a half million dollars in scholarships every year? And are you giving it to the people that you really want to have it? Um, I, I don't want to bore you with my problems, but, you know, if you go to the high school, it, the person who has a 4.0 average gets lots of scholarships. That's not the one you want to get. You want to get the one who has a B-plus average. 
but yet you can't discriminate. So you kind of you know fumble around on what you know what's the best way to kind of get get those people to apply with to start with because they don't apply because they think they can win, and uh, if they do apply, generally their essays are not at the top of the stack. So it is it's you know you talk to your kitchen cabinet about how do you get closer to your actual mission of getting those B plus male students to apply for college scholarships. Yeah, and 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 not only that, but but think about this for a second. There, there's a reason why you want the B plus people. Why is that? I mean, I, I tell my listeners because I just I think it's fascinating. I mean, well, uh, I guess that uh, I like to get some of the B B pluses because those are the people who, like I said, don't apply. Uh, because they think they cannot win, because there's too many 4.0s <laughs> who make applications, which which is true. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, we give out something like 200 scholarships a year, and we like to get 10 applications for every scholarship we give. So we get 2,000 applications a year. And then, obviously, we run through them right quick and see which how many male we have, how many female we have, how many... Uh, GPA, uh, you know, 4.0 versus Bs versus Cs. Um, you had to, you had to have a C or you're not eligible to win. So, right. anyhow, it, uh, you're you're in the process of doing this. You're building some strategic plan to try and accomplish your mission. And my mission, in the back of my head, is to get more B plus students to apply because they are underrepresented. Right, and and you said male for a reason because because a lot of them think maybe they can't get the scholarship. Most, most well, most of the females, most of the applications are by females. Probably sixty or maybe even as high as seventy percent from some schools, and uh, because those guys are twelfth, you know, they're in the twelfth grade, uh, they they don't like to sit down and write a three hundred word essay. Right. Yeah, no. I mean, listen, again, I just, I just love it. And I've, I've been fortunate over the years to be an evaluator and, and read some of those essays. And I love that one of the piece of advice you give the evaluators is just look for the people that actually need it, that really, you know, really, really need the money. And and, and that just stems out of your whole philosophy of trying to help those uh, that, that need the most help. And, and I just admire that greatly. Um, what What advice would you give to someone going into leadership position for the first time? Hmm. I, I guess that uh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I, I, you know, well, obviously, the first thing you got to do is you got to work very hard, even though you think you know a leader. You're in a leadership. Uh, you lead by example. That's that's how I do it. And uh, so, um, I, I guess my advice to them would be to lead by example. Yeah, no, and that's great. That's great advice because everyone's watching. I mean, you know, I, I, in my speeches today, I say, and I actually took it from another speaker, so I can't take credit for it, but I heard it and I've just taken it to a new level in my life. But when I get out of the car every morning, I don't even do it when I'm at the door to the building because I know they're watching from the windows, but I literally stand up straight, adjust my belt, straighten the jacket, and I say, it's showtime because it is every day. And and I do this, you know. Hopefully, do the same thing when I'm with my family because people are watching. And and if you walk in and you're like, you know, it's been a horrible day. They're like, apparently, that's the way today is going to go. But if you walk in ready to win, that's the way today is going to go. And I love, I love that that was your answer. I um, I've always wanted to ask you this, and so this is this is a good question for me. But what what one piece of advice would you give your 30 year old self? Like, what do you wish you would have known earlier in your career? 
that um, uh, money is not everything, that, uh, you know, your relationships are more important than money. I'm talking about relationships with your employees, with uh, your family. Yeah, that's powerful. And that's and 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 you know I would agree with that even in my own life. So I, I really uh... think for yourself when you were thirty, you know, because I remember when you were thirty, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so long ago. You you were very aggressive. <laughs> I was, and hopefully I've mellowed out over the years. You know, I appreciate yeah. it. and and you've been part of that process. You know, just to enjoy life and and really value family and value. Uh, uh, the people, like you said, the relationships with your employees and with your vendors and with your clients, and 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 you know, friendships are made in those relationships, and so they are, they are. It's really so. How do you prioritize your life? How and have you, you know, how often do you maybe maybe reevaluate your priorities? How do you prioritize your life? Uh, well, as you get older, you kind of uh, do it a little bit differently, and it turns out that. Uh, your family is the most important thing in your life, so don't lose track of that, which I did when I was 30, because I worked all the time, uh, and I would, if I have a regret, I should have spent a little more time with my family. Uh, so your your family is very important. Your relationship with your uh, friends uh, is important, so kind of cultivate that as you go through. Because as you get a little older, you can look back on that with uh, fond memories. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you, by the way, uh, if there was any la- lack of uh, time you put in, you've made up for that over the years. And and I know that you know the family's so close today with not only Kyle and Kent, and but their great wives and 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 then the grandchildren um, spend a lot of time together. Uh, for the, for these next questions, can you put on your Strayer hat for a second? Because the next questions are more tactical CEO leadership questions. Um, you did such an amazing job growing Strayer, and, and I was able to witness that growth. What, what is the best way to create incentives to reward people in, in the company? Was it set bonuses? Was it tied directly to performance? How did you do that? Uh, well, I mean, that is all part of the learning process. Obviously, I had at one point I had 80 salespeople uh, working for me. And uh, if you'd asked me uh, at the beginning, I'd say, oh, well, yeah, you put a bonus in there. Well, you know, I found out that uh, a monetary bonus uh, is uh, not all that important. Uh, obviously, everybody has to make enough money to pay their rent and their car payment and, and uh, some, some, but uh, they have to have satisfaction, job satisfaction uh, uh, to, uh, to, to bring it along. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because you you once told me you're like you know as far as like giving away turkeys or giving away set bonuses that that you know those become you know people people rely on them they just become part of the package and to reward people randomly I mean that was such great advice where I mean how did you come up with that did you just see that people weren't appreciating or well yeah no I guess that uh, you know when I was in work in private industry I worked for the National Association of Home Builders one of the problems is if you give everybody the same thing every year then they begin to expect it and so it's not a surprise so it's better off if you can do it unexpectedly right uh, and uh, I tell you to, to tell somebody that they're doing a fine job and uh, that you really appreciate their, their hard work is worth much more than a turkey. 
that attitude of gratitude and uh and and you know it's got to come from the heart and 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 I think it's got to be real but but you know hopefully you wouldn't say it if it if it wasn't and and but just to recognize that you know when when faced with two equally qualified candidates how do you decide whom to hire um i guess it uh you look to see how well you think they will fit within their team. Yeah, how they get along. That's such... how they get along. What their personal skills are. You know, I heard somebody say they would, uh, they would, they would pick the one they wanted to hang out with the most. Well, that's true. You know, just just from from that standpoint, that would, that would have been a good answer too. You know, but, uh... well, you did, I mean, you kind of did say that. I mean, how they're going to get along and how you know yeah. you'd get along with them. So I mean, you you were reinforcing that. It's it's. Uh, I guess culture becomes such an important part. And I think that, you know, being around Strayer kind of as it was growing, the culture was a really neat culture. How would you describe the culture of Strayer and how did you, how would you help a new employee to understand the culture of the organization? Well, uh, I, I did pride myself, like I said, telling everybody when I seen them each day what they were expected to do and that was really telling them what the vision was. So uh, in, in the process of doing that, if there was any friction, you kind of frowned and said, we don't like too much friction around here. And uh, if they got to be uh, uh, too aggressive, particularly in sales, uh, they would steal other people's uh, <laughs> leads and clients. You would have to sometimes step in and say, "No, no, that's we don't like to do that." Um, so uh, you know, you, you just you just kind of uh, tell them what's expected of them, and most of the time, people will uh, uh, subscribe to that. But there, there was I wasn't there like there was a satisfaction that also because what's, what was neat about Strayer was you kind of re, you know, you rethought the business model. In other words. You kept in mind, I would argue, the students first above all else, like what times they wanted would want classes because a lot of these people were working or they were in, in government jobs. Um, so part of the, the culture, would you, would you say, was, you know, really making a difference in people's lives? Oh, yeah. No, I, I felt that I was the, the students, our customer, the students. I was their biggest advocate. Um, if, uh, you know, I knew that... Uh, some of them didn't appreciate football, so I could schedule a class on Sunday afternoon at the campuses, and you know they would fill up because that's whenever you know they could get their uh, husbands to watch the kids, and they could come and take the classes, or vice versa. So you always put you know what what they needed first, and if uh, one of the professors was cutting classes a little too short, I would not tolerate that. I'd say, look, they paid for. Uh, two and a half hours, you give them two and a half hours. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, you watch out for your customers. And just like with your vending machine, I didn't want to gouge them and say, okay, <laughs> charge, charge them a dollar for a candy bar. You charge them 75 cents and don't worry about, you know, my commission. I did the same thing in the bookstores. I, I sold the books for exactly what we paid for them because that wasn't what I was in business of doing. I don't know how many times I had chances to take the phone system and get extra commission because we had a lot of international students and they were making long distance calls. And I said, no, 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 I'm not in that business. So I was in the business of education. I can make a good living there. So I didn't get, um, and it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was to my advantage to gouge the students on other 
items. That's just, uh, you know, I, I I hate to say this, and I, I'm hoping it's not true, but, you know, it almost seemed like a rare quality. Um, but but I think it's it's so smart from a perspective. I mean, and it comes from the heart. So, I mean, this is not some twisted plan. This was really from the heart. Like, you wanted to make sure that people felt good about what they were getting, and, and that was part of the success of Strayer. You know, w- when you look at your decisions or the decisions of a leader, um, what are the most important decisions that you make as a leader of your organization? Do you think, and I'm going to ask you what to choose one of these three, which you think is the most important. Do you think it's related to strategy, finance, or people, and why? Um, I think it um, is a strategy because uh, you have to have some sort of vision. You have to be able to repeat that vision, and you have to convince other people that that's a good direction to go and get, like you go back and say, okay, I got everybody on the bus. I've got the people that don't belong on the bus off the bus. Yeah. So um, uh, obviously the other two are very important too, Daniel, but I think the most important one is if whoever's in charge doesn't have a good idea of where they think they're going with the, uh, the organization, uh, it generally flounders. That's interesting because, you know, my thought would be people – but but you're right. If you don't have a strategy to, to first get those people on board, and then to you know create a, a you know, situation where they want to be there, then you're going to lose good people and you won't be able to attract them in the first place. So that's love that answer and and actually appreciate it for, almost, my, for my own life. Yeah, I almost said people, but it really isn't because I've been I worked for a few organizations where they had no idea what they were trying to do, and uh, you ended up frilling around all day every day and nothing ever got done. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, as as an organization gets larger, and, and I mean, think of the growth that you went through, there can be a tendency for the institution, I'll put that in quotes, okay, the institution to dampen the inspiration. H- how do you keep that from happening as you grow? Is it? Is it- well, you know, I, I guess that uh, uh, we were a good example of that. We had one campus and we went to 15. Uh, we tried to make each of the units unique rather than one big thing. Uh, so, uh, for instance, you had a campus director, and they directed the campus. So you didn't have someone out of downtown Washington calling all the shots and uh, all of that stuff. You ran each unit as a, I don't want to call it a profit center, but kind of like a profit center. And you didn't permit the bureaucracy to, you know, to creep in. And uh, if, as long as you could keep those directors and those deans with the same, you know, with the same mission, you could have 15 different ones. But uh, the the deans and the directors had a lot of power, but not so much so from corporate. Right. And, and, you know, the neat thing about that is that they, they, are, they are become the masters of their own destiny, right? So they're, they are completely in control from that perspective. And that freedom and that entrepreneurial spirit that you give them then passes on to their employees and to the clients, which, you know, students at that point coming in. So, um, yeah, yeah that worked out. That worked out well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer because there is a tendency to kind of consolidate, I would guess, as you grow bigger. Uh, you know, a lot of people would advise me, different people advise me at different times that, uh, you know, I had the organization incorrect. 
<laughs> and I, I, I can argue that they may have been advising in the wrong direction since uh, uh, they your, may, success, they may have. your success speaks for itself. And uh, just the fact that you were sticking with, you know, sticking to your guns, that's that's impressive. As a, as a quick side note, and I know um, this is just a curious question for me and hopefully my listeners, some of them will find this interesting. But have you found what what have you found to be an optimal number of direct reports to a CEO? Was there a time when you had too many people reporting to you? How did you know it? Yeah, I think so. You know, you really, um, the Army, you know, uh, has uh, two. So, uh, you know, you have uh, two privates and a corporal, two corporals and a sergeant and so forth. So maybe a little better, bigger span of control than that. So, but probably six or seven. Uh, I mean, you tell me that you got uh, uh, 14 direct reports. I'm saying, wow, something's wrong there. Right. Because it's really difficult to keep 14 people highly motivated and focused and marching in the same direction. You know, because well, even from a timing perspective, I mean, just spending enough time with 14 people compared to like you know five or six makes a difference. You know, I was I was in a dinner the other night and I got invited. I got invited to this dinner. It was a dinner for twelve interesting people, and how can you not? How can you say no to that? And sitting next to me was a venture capitalist, and they asked, "What do you look for when you buy a company?" You know what he said? He said, "I look for a CEO that's an I, because we bring in a we mentality, and we make a heck of a lot more money than I's do." And and I thought, what a and that kind of goes in line with what you just answered, which is, you know, you've got to be able to be in a position where you can a- answer questions and get people moving in the right direction. Um, how do you? How did you keep a pulse on the business organization and not be isolated in the ivory CEO tower, if you will? I mean, I know you went around to a lot of the campuses you, on a regular basis. Was that how you how you did it? Uh, yeah, well, sure. I think that uh, uh, he had run off. I guess at one point there we had about eight hundred people on the payroll, uh, but you can't do it from just sitting there. You got to get up and and move around. Be careful you don't get too many direct reports or you don't have time to get done what you need to get done. Um, if you have a direct report, you have to talk to them every day, Daniel. You can't talk to them once a week. You got to talk to them every day. And uh, so I, I guess by, you know, moving around and, you know, uh, people tell you what's going on. I, I always uh, was very interested in um, the reports. So before I met with somebody, particularly if it had to do with uh, collection, the finance, or the missions, uh, even even the professors, I mean, I knew if if uh, I got a copy of their evaluations before I would meet with them. So I knew that the students either liked them, didn't like them, what they liked about them. Uh, so uh, I, generally, before I had a meeting, I would pre- I was prepped. I knew what was going on. Spent some time. Uh, preparing for that meeting, and this is—I did this every day. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it mattered, didn't it? I mean, because you knew what was going on, you knew what those students thought. They wanted to talk about football, and I said, "No, let's talk about collections, or let's talk about new students coming in, or something else." Yeah, and that's that's also great advice into you know what conversations are you getting and to involved with at the office, and yeah. and not that you can't be a friend with them or or, or have a you know nice conversation, but just keeping people focused on the end result. Yeah. So, so, so let me ask you this, have a board, not have a board. I mean, if you're a small company or even a large, you know, what are the most important factors in a strong board of directors and interaction with the CEO? 
Well, um, I guess that uh, I've always had boards, uh, so um, I, I'm in I'm in favor of boards. Um, if you're the CEO, uh, then uh, they you don't get the board overly involved. Uh, but uh, when you start stating your mission and which direction you're going to go, then a board becomes very important uh, because they tell you that that doesn't sound so good or that sounds pretty good or uh, that's really not part of your mission statement, so don't get involved there. So that, that generally your board is a group of uh, people who you think of as your peers. So when they speak, you generally like to hear what they have to say. But your board is not your superior, so you don't you know, react with fear when they talk. So uh, I, I think the board's very important to help the organization, and I haven't seen many successful organizations that don't have some type of a board of at least uh, five to seven people. And even an advisory board, right? So it doesn't have to be a. Well, most of them are called. Uh, yeah, I like yeah. to call them advisory boards. That way, they don't get too bossy. <laughs> See, I like that, and 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 I think that you know, and I I hope you don't mind me interjecting here, but I mean that was some of the best advice you've given me over the years. Is just even as a small business to have an advisory board, so that it's not just you against everyone else. Also, so that you can say, listen, I went to the board, and and this is the advice that they gave, and you know, even though I want to do this, this is the advice that I'm getting, and that's the way I'm gonna I'm gonna go. Yeah, so no, I, I think that's very valuable. You know, at this point, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. We've we focused on the learning part and of the of the podcast, the leadership part of the podcast. Now from a legacy perspective, um, what's the best business or life advice you would give your kids or grandkids? Uh, you know, get you a job that you like because you're going to be doing it 40, 40 years and uh, make sure that... Uh, Every day you get up that you're uh, looking forward to going to work. Because if you hate the thought of getting up and going to work, then you, your life's going to be long and hard. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. And find what you do. Find your passion. I, I even talk to my own kids about this. I don't even care what it is, but just find your passion and do it. Uh, what's, what's left that you still want to accomplish? Do you feel like you have any unfinished business? I don't have that much stuff in my bucket list. Uh, I guess that uh, I would still like to. Now I've got eight grandkids, and uh, the oldest one is uh, first year of college. So I would kind of like to uh, uh, help guide them to make sure that they get on through their education and uh, uh, take that next step on into life, and you know, and, and either find them a job and go to work. Yeah, that's uh, that's great, and so fortunate to have somebody who's invested in them, you know, from a, a love standpoint and a attention and time standpoint. Because, you know, you said one time the half over half the battles just showing up, right? Just being there and and caring for them. Uh, is there anything that would make you happier today? Like, what would make you happier today in your life? Um. I guess that, um, as you, as you know, Daniel, I, I uh, my health is not as good as it used to be. So that's but turned out to be very important in your life is uh, your personal health. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'd like to I like to go boating. You and I used to go boating some, so I like to go boating, but I can't do that much anymore. So uh, there's a few, there's a few things that you have to curtail. But from an, a business standpoint, I I. Uh, 
I really don't have any desires to get out into the daily activities of either the brewery business, that's what one of my sons are doing, or in a retail business, that's what the other one's doing. Um, and, I, and I guess I'm pretty content that the foundation is operating and there's nothing significant changes uh, that are being made. There's a lot of gratification because we do give out, as I said, those 200 scholarships, and they help a lot of people uh, get their education that would otherwise uh, have a harder time getting it. And uh, so that, that's very gratifying. As, as you know, we have a, a, a little party for them and, and uh, award them their scholarships and things of that type. That's very gratifying, not only for me, but for the whole family, because it's called the Bailey Family Foundation. So. Well, and and again, I hope you. I want to share this with my listeners. I've had a chance to be at at many of those dinners over the years, and there's one thing that you know. Again, Ron doesn't always tell the whole story because not only do they give him the scholarships, but at that very dinner, where these kids are getting these scholarships, um, Kent or Kyle will get up and say, "Hey, you know, we also got you another gift for coming here tonight," and they actually. Um, and joke around and say, you know, I got you this nice pen, and they go, just kidding, we got you all laptops, and they, you know, unveil two hundred lap, four, you know, fifteen hundred dollar laptops, and to watch the kids' reaction and their families, you know, some of these kids have never had a computer in their family, you know, for themselves, let alone their entire family, they have to go to the library or something, and. You know, I remember a young woman at our table just broke down into tears. She said, is this real? Is this really happening? And I mean, I could barely keep myself together. And when she went up, she clutched that computer like it was life's blood. And watching her do that, watching the parents just, I mean, almost sobbing in in appreciation. And I mean, I I can only imagine, we're going to get to that in a second, the feeling that you get through that. But I mean, it's just such a neat thing. So when I say happier today, I realize that I I know that you're happy on a day-to-day basis. And that's one of the things that I I love about you and being around you. Um, I enjoy coming to work every day. Yeah, no, and I I feel that and I know the family feels it too. Uh, You know, just, just for our listeners, because there's a lot of young entrepreneurs, there's a lot of people who've been in their jobs for a long time. How do you, just from a personal perspective, from someone who's had success, how do you define success both personally and professionally? Um, I guess that, um, you know, you, you start back and my mother told me that if I ever got a job in the post office, I would be successful. Uh, when I got out of the military and got with the government, she said, you're a success. But I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. So in reality, success for me was when I got in a position where I controlled enough of the organization so no one could tell me not to come in tomorrow. Yeah, no. Yeah, and and, and I think you used a term one time, financial freedom. You said, I want to be able to do what I want, when I want, any way I want to do it so that I don't have to rely on others to make that happen. And I always appreciated and valued that answer and, and have kind of tried to apply that in my own life. So I appreciate that. You know, I, I believe that the best part of capitalism is the value it creates for so many, especially the least fortunate among us, and how so many businesses add value to others and the communities around them. From a Strayer perspective and from your foundation perspective, can you describe how the company added value to society like and the community in which it operates? What what is the legacy your business left? Well, I think that uh, I uh, the population that Strayer served, we had a campus in right downtown D.C. 
and uh, the population was uh, generally um, poor and uh, maybe not as well prepared as uh, some of the suburban schools were. Uh, the uh, the traditional schools uh, would not accept these students. And uh, so one of the things that we were able to do was go ahead and if you graduated from high school, we were we would accept you. And we tried not to play um, God and say, yes, you can, no, you can't. Now, we would accept you in, and you had to make good grades or you would flunk out, but at least you would get in. So I always felt pretty proud of that because if you tried to get into American University or GW or those, they just wouldn't accept you. Uh, so uh, the, the population we served uh, was... Uh, 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 a good population. I'm proud that uh, that we did that, and I think that our um, 15,000. We had 15,000 students when uh, I sold the, the university, and uh, so I was real proud of our our student body. And uh, probably 60% of all those 15,000 students were already working full time and attending school part time to try and get their credentials up so that they could get a promotion in the company for which they were in. And uh, that was a, a market that needed to be served. Um, and, and, well, and still does. Yeah. No, I mean, you, um, and it goes back to even, like, uh, you know, I think you offered one class at midnight, and, and that was one of the first classes to fill up because, you know, somebody was trying to deal with their family and deal with their, their work, and, you know, sometimes those were the only times they had available to, to go above and beyond and try to make this happen. Dr. Otebi said that class will go, and I said, you're joking. That class is not going to go at midnight, and he got it to go. I went down there at midnight, and sure enough, there were like 40 people in that class. Yeah, that's amazing. That's huh. amazing. Hey, hey, let's talk family for a few minutes. You, so you have this incredible wife, Beverly, two great kids, and Kyle and Kent, and they have great families. So how did you and Beverly raise two level-headed, successful kids with all the demands on your time and all the financial success? Uh, have no, I have no idea. <laughs> Beverly and I have been married for 53 years, I guess it is. And uh, so uh, we were married uh, when I was in the military. Um, and when I got out, we both had to work. We both worked very hard. And uh, it, uh, we were married about five years before we had any kids. And we had a, a boy and then about... Uh, Two years later, we had another boy. So I was kind of wanting a girl, but I didn't want another kid, so we quit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I guess that uh, there again, you offer your leadership by example. They could see that both Beverly and I were getting up and going to work every day, and uh, that we were, in addition to that, we were trying to keep the house up, and we were trying to uh, give, give the kids attention and uh, make sure that they got their schooling to, uh, to go and, sh and show an interest in uh, what they were doing. And uh, so I, I guess that, uh, you know, it, uh, I don't know that we did anything special, but uh, we, we did spend a lot of time with them. And, uh, and I feel blessed that they didn't, none of them fell off the edge or anything like that. And uh, I, I 
But you also, I mean, think about this for a second. So, so even when you, and, and I'm not going to get too personal here, but I, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and, and lay this on the line. Even when you were worth tens of millions of dollars, you were still living in the same $300,000 house. Um, I, I guess that, um, you know, I, obviously it is, it is, it has never been the money. Um, Stan was down this week and we went to Burns' steakhouse and the damn bill was $175 for the two of us. And I'm saying, well, that's too much money. We're not going back there anymore. <laughs> so uh, oh, at any cool. rate, so it's never really been about the money. I, uh, I think that Beverly and I never really realized uh, and, and still don't today. You know, I run around and turn out lights when she goes through. When she leaves the room, doesn't turn the light out. I turn it out because I want to save on electricity. Uh, but uh, so I, we've been fairly frugal. I mean, both of us as kids were raised. Uh, we didn't have a lot, but we, you know, we had enough. But uh, we never really uh, thought about the, the money that much. And then, of course, our kids turned out they never really had a whole lot of money. And uh, as I said, I knew I've known a lot of people with uh, money, so uh, it. I've always said that I'm going to give my kids whatever I'm going to give them, so that if they want to go to dinner with me, it's not because of my will. So I have already given in a trust all the money that those kids are going to get and the grandkids are going to get. So uh, they they can't sit around and wish me dead. <laughs> if they if they want to go to dinner with me, it's because they want to go, not because of any inheritance or not because of money. And actually, it's worked out pretty good, and everybody's kept a pretty good attitude. You know, it, it's interesting because I can guarantee, knowing knowing the family, um, the biggest loss there would be the the the, the knowledge and, and just the conversations. I mean, it, it's it's amazing, and and I think everyone knows that around you, uh, just the wealth of knowledge and experience and. And 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 there's so much value in that. So I love I love that uh, you know just watching that unfold because you know even the grandkids. I mean the grandkids are appreciative and and good kids doing great in school. Yeah, they seem to be all of them seem to be doing good. And uh, uh, I said I'm I'm optimistic that uh, we'll get them all enrolled in, uh, in college here pretty soon. What what has been your strategy to make sure you prioritize the family? I know you guys meet on a regular basis. Can you share that? Uh, well. Yeah. You know, until I got sick recently, we had uh, uh, people into the house uh, every week for a meal. We would meet at first Kyle's house and then Kent's house and then their house. And, you know, we did that for several years. So we would, uh, the kids got kind of used to going to different people's houses and sitting down and having a meal and uh, things of that type. Uh, I, I guess that... Kyle generally comes by the office on Mondays and we go to lunch and Kit comes by on Thursdays and we go to lunch. So we still have a, you know, a routine, which we um, kind of adhere to. Uh, Kent, I serve on Kent's advisory board. And uh, so I, I have meetings with him once in a while. So, uh, no, we have, we have a good deal of interaction in, uh, as I said, the, the, we don't have as much with the grandkids as you used to, because as they get older, they get their own agendas and their own friends and their own schedules and things like that. But uh, so I do miss I do miss them being out, you know uh, I guess one of them's in the eighth grade and and I only have two left that are less than eighth grade so they're about to grow up. Right. Yeah. And that's uh, life goes by quickly, doesn't it? 
it's it's a uh, so so with with your foundation and and we'll include a link to the foundation in the show notes so others can learn more about it but the Bailey Family Foundation you give away millions in scholarships why do you do that and and what does that feel like to change lives well when um, I, I sold the uh, university and uh, relocated to Tampa uh, I made a decision on how much money that I wanted to give the kids and any money that I had left, uh, I had uh, given to the foundation. And uh, I thought, well, what do you, what is it you're going to do? And there again, you got to form some sort of a strategic plan. And in my case, I had to form a strategic plan, which I could get the family to kind of buy into and agree that it was a good mission. So, uh, I've always been very big on education. If you do your education, that's something that you do that no one can ever take away from you. You can't lose it. It's yours. So how do you do that? Well, you do that through uh, scholarships. And then you have to figure out some way to equitably give out those scholarships so that they're, you, try, you hope you're giving it to people that need it. And... Uh, so uh, I think I got the whole family to buy in that uh, we were going to run this foundation. Uh, to run a foundation, you have to give away about 5% of your assets. And so uh, we got uh, $50 million in it. So you have to give away $2.5 million a year. And uh, so if you break it up into $20,000 unit scholarships, then it, you know, that'll give you about 200 And uh so then you have to say, well, how are you going to decide who gets them? Well, it's pretty standard. Uh, they have to apply for it and write a 300-word essay, and you get five different people to read the essays and give them a score. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of do it blindly because nobody ever knows who, who you know who it is. Or they certainly don't know their addresses and things like that. So uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that uh, uh, we're running a foundation. Uh, we are uh, we have a mission that's uh, doable, and I feel that uh, I could control uh, enough so that we are heading to- toward accomplishing our mission. And I'm I'm reluctant to uh, change the mission and say, okay, well, the real problem is, is when they're in pre pre K. Well, I don't get into that. I only get into post secondary education because that's where I have some knowledge. Right. So do you have any standout stories of how the foundation was able to change someone's life? Um, I don't I don't think I have I get I get an awful lot of letters and that's very gratifying telling me that they're now, you know, in medical school that uh you know they they appreciate it so much that uh they couldn't have done it without me. I just, you know, I just, I just get an awful lot of that. And and of course, I would expect you never to brag on that because that's who you are. But I, I, I will say that I have heard, you know, so many of those stories of people who, you know, just wouldn't have had that chance without that those resources. And and I think that goes with kind of your view of life from where you grew up, on you know, kind of not even imagining maybe going to college and then ma- making sure that was a priority in your life and and really changing the trajectory of your entire family now because. If you are related to you in any way, right, you get a full scholarship to college, and and uh, I go back to my great grandfather, and I called a heritage scholarship. So anybody in our family who's a direct lineal descendant of George Patton Bailey gets a scholarship. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, this 
what a great way to, like I said, just change the whole direction of an entire family. And 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 this, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but this is the untold story that you'll see time and time again in this podcast. Many good people in the free market creating wealth and give, and then giving that wealth away to help others, to better communities, to create opportunities for others outside of themselves. Because a lot of these people are unsung heroes like you, Ron Bailey, you know, humble servant leaders. They're their stories, your stories aren't winning top news headlines, but these are the stories that we need to, you know, that need to be told that it, and celebrated, not only for our generation, but for, but for coming generations. And, uh, you know, I guess with that in mind, I I believe that we ought to go through life with one hand extended up for help for those who, you know, are a little further from a little further along than us in life, but then also one hand extended down to help others who are coming up along in life behind us. Can you name a person who has had a significant impact on you as a leader, maybe a mentor, someone who offered this hand down to you? I think that, um, you know, Charles E. Palmer, who uh, owned Strayer College uh, back in uh, 1974 when I went there as an adjunct professor, uh, gave me a hand up. And when he made me vice president of finance and uh, asked me to try and sell the, the college and agreed to take paperback if I could give him 300000 uh, was he was my mentor. And uh, a, an awful lot of my management style really comes from Charles E. Palmer. You know, it's interesting because he, he could have taken the safe way out, couldn't he? I mean, he, he could have gone with some big company or some other organization that was solid in, in their ability to pay you back. It, and he took a risk with you for a reason. He liked you, didn't he? He did. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I said he he had uh, other people that, that was going to give him IOUs as well. Uh, of course, he liked me, and I told him, I said, well, Dr. Palmer, if I miss a payment. You you still got to college, so yeah, you know, there's not that much of a risk. Yeah, no, that's that's exciting, and 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 I'm gonna go ahead and say this, Ron Bailey. You are that person for me. Just so you know, the reason the reason I chose you to be the inaugural interview on the premiere episode, you know, of expanding leadership is because you have literally changed my life for the better. You um. And you're going to listen to this. I know you don't like it, but you have, you know, you've invested me in so many ways. I mean, the, the most important being time and knowledge. And you took me, a kid, a young entrepreneur, and you believed in me. The way you view business, you value family, your generous heart. I mean, the way you enjoy life to its fullest, I will forever be grateful. And, and I just, I can't say, words cannot describe the eternal appreciation that I have for you and your entire family. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Well, well, thank you, Daniel. I always kind of thought of you as a son, and in fact, I guess I treated you a lot like a son. <laughs> you, yeah, you did. I mean, you you built me up, and you made sure that I was hopefully, you know, heading on the right direction. And 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 you know, even just watching the way you, you deal with Kyle and Kent and and their success and and what they've done with their families. I mean, it is just so impressive. You know, I want to I want you to know that that is part of your leadership legacy, and uh, in in that same vein. And, and we'll kind of end, end with this with this question, just because I, I think it's so uh, such a neat question. In my speeches, I ask the audience to answer this question because um, we talk about legacy and 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 life, and and then I'll say. So I have a question for you, and I just want you to really think about it. Um, how will your children describe you to their children? In other words, you know, what will that legacy be? 
and and then I'll say, you know, will they say, well, he was never around, or he loved me so much, or he wanted me to have fun, or he believed in me? Ron Bailey, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? Um, I, I guess that uh, fortunately for me, I, I've made a uh, video, and my son, my sons have been in it, and they said that uh, when I was around. Life was always fun. That uh, they uh, listen, you know, I was always full of advice and they listen to it sometimes. <laughs> I love the honesty there. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, uh, anyhow, but no, I mean, that's about all I could expect of uh, my two boys that, uh, that, that they think that uh, I was nice to be around and uh, that. Uh, uh, did the best I could on giving advice. Yeah, and 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 you have not only for the family, but for so many others in your business life and in your community and your church. So, Ron, I want to thank you for your time today. I'm confident my listeners will walk away from this podcast with you better equipped to tackle the challenges that leaders face every day as they try to lead their families and their businesses with greater purpose, direction, and optimism. Just as you have changed my life for the better, I'm sure other lives are changed as well. Thank you again for being with me, always believing in me, and it's been great hearing how you expand leadership. Thank you so much, Ron Bailey. Have a great day, Dan. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Don't just listen, subscribe. This will help others discover the show. And please, as a personal favor to me, write a review. When you subscribe to Garage to Goliath podcast and write a review, it boosts our ratings. Ratings in turn help others find this show. Please also share this podcast with friends and family so together we can expand leadership excellence.